0: Well, good morning, Door Creek. How are you all today? Good to be together. If you're a guest, my name's Mark, one of the pastors here. And uh, we are working through this uh, series we're calling Simplify. It's all about putting first things first. Today, we're going to be talking about money and possessions. I don't know if you've seen Peter Menzel's f- photographs of people who took all the belongings that they have all the stuff that's in their house, and they put it in front of their house, and uh, he takes pictures of these families. It's, uh, it's a book that captures those uh, photographs called Material World. There's also a Chinese photographer, Hong King Jung, who has done the same thing. So let me show you six families from around the world with their stuff, and maybe you can imagine your stuff in front of your house, your apartment. So this is a family from China, I love those pigs kind of scurrying through up front. Here's, uh, I think this next one is like from Mongolia. They're out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm loving that they've got a dish out there. That's pretty cool. Uh, then this next picture comes from a family in Istanbul, Turkey, right? And so they've got it kind of up front and down along the side there. This next one is an African family from West Africa, the country of Mali, and you can see there. Their possessions, and it's pretty interesting to see that. It's pretty much their cooking vessels, right? Just That's what they've got up there on top of their roof. This next one is a family from Bhutan, which would be right a neighboring country of Nepal. And you see their possessions in the the background there and some things, it looks like some religious artifacts up front. And then you have this picture, which looks a little bit more familiar to some of us, right here in the good old U.S. of A., so, um, if, you, if you emptied the contents of your apartment, right, uh, of your condo, of your home, and you saw it all there in front on, on the lawn, what would you think? Would you want to have your picture taken in front of it? And, uh, our, our, and by the way, I'm talking about all your stuff now, like the stuff you still are, you know, you're pack ratting at your folks house and they want you to get it out for crying out loud. I'm talking about that stuff. I'm talking about your friend who's storing your boat or your camper, your RV. I'm talking about the stuff that's at the store. You got me now, right? Not just in your apartment, not just in your condo, your house, everything that you own. So would it fit? Would it fit out front of your place? So I remember coming back from Africa you can put that picture down, thanks. Coming back from Africa, and I'd been in Liberia, I'd been in Sierra Leone, i have been hanging out with people that we hear about to live on less than a dollar a day. So everybody that I knew and met were people, at, especially there in Monrovia, at the point that was our sister church, Evangelical Free Church in Monrovia. Um, they, they all only ate one meal a day. It was about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And they got Matthew, Pastor Matthew, had a lot of little kids. They ate one time a day. We traveled a long way to Sierra Leone, crossing rivers and just the wildest trip I've had at that time. And, and we got to this little village and uh, saw life in that little village. And when I got home, and I was driving down the hill of Hupmobile Drive, I just got a knot in my stomach because I was looking at my neighbor's home and I was driving up to our home and there was just all this dissonance within me. You understand what I'm saying in terms of what I just experienced in walking back into the abundance of life here, right here in America. I think this kind of a message raises up dissonance. What, what, what I don't want this message to do is kind of just guilt someone to not a healthy place because when God talks to us about our money and possessions, um, it's, it's a gracious thing. It's, it's a good word. And when God motivates us to be like him in this world, holding the things he gives us lightly and sharing them with people in need, um, he uses grace, not guilt, to motivate us. And so I'm just going to invite you into, we'll just call this a kind of a guilt-free space this morning because it's easy for us to get guilty. because I didn't even give you the statistics. So this is like where the guilty thing, like, Ah! Uh, 2.8 billion people, almost half of the world's population, live on less than two dollars a day. It's not a lot of money. 1.2 billion live on less a dollar. If you make 40,000 dollars a year, the average income household in Dane County is 60 and above. If you make 40, top one percent. Top one percent. It kind of gives us perspective. You make 25000 top 10% of the world. And so we want to talk about what does God say about money and possessions and how are we as Christ followers? Maybe you're not a Christ follower yet, but it's really important, you know, that, that God doesn't stutter on the issues of money and possessions. In fact, Jesus spoke more about money than he did about hell And so we want to be thinking through why do we have so much stuff and what's driving that? And how much do we really need? Is this a fair question? How much is too much? So as we think about what the Bible says about it, grab your Bible, go to the second book in the Bible, Exodus, Exodus 16. As you're turning to Exodus 16, let me kind of catch you up in the Bible story. The children of Israel have just spent the last 400 years in Egypt as slaves, God sends Moses to lead him out. There's the 10 plagues, the angel of death, the 10th plague, the firstborn sons of anybody in all of the land of Egypt that didn't put the lamb of that one year, the blood of that one-year-old lamb over the doorposts of their house. They lost their firstborn. The cries go out in the middle of the night. Pharaoh calls for Moses and says, get out of here. And as they're going out, God says to the people, ask the Egyptians for possessions as you're going out, and they're just giving them stuff, their gold, their silver, some of the stuffs that would actually be part of the tabernacle that they would build in days to come, years to come. And then God leads them out of Egypt, and they get right up to the Red Sea. And it's at this point that Pharaoh changes his mind. He's going, Man, I'm just losing a couple million slaves, and I have a change of mind here. We need these people. So he sends his army after him, and he goes in his chariot, leading the way to chase down God's people. And it's this precarious situation where they got the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh's army pressing in behind, and God does a miracle. And he makes a way through the sea, and as they pass on dry ground on the other side, Pharaoh's Egyptian army is in hot pursuit, only to be drowned by the seas that crash in over them. And they're three days out from crossing the Red Sea. They haven't had any water. Three days, 72 hours, a long time. You got little children. And so they're, they're crying out to Moses. They're complaining. We're gonna die here. What are you doing? You let us out here only to die? God brings them to a place of water, but the water's bitter to kind of remind them what's going on even in their own hearts, a bitterness against God's goodness in the midst of His unbelievable deliverance. And so Moses throws a piece of wood in the water and it turns to sweet water. They drink it and then they move down to Palm Springs. You didn't know. It's in the Bible. It is. <laughs> so look at fifteen twenty-seven. Then they came to Elim where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. I'm telling you, palm springs right there. 12 springs, 70 palm trees, and they camped near the water. All right, so here's where we are, chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai. Sinai is where Moses would meet God and get the Ten Commandments, where the covenant relationship was was, uh, hatched, so to speak, right there on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. We're gonna read that word grumbled seven times in chapter 16, the beginning of 17. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out in this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. And the Lord said to Moses, I'll rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Skip down to verse 13. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? That's actually like the literal Hebrew word there for manna, means what is it? They didn't know, for they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer, that's about three and a half quarts, dry measure, okay, for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told, some gathered much, some little, and when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses, verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Head down to verse 31. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. Verse 35, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. I mean, how many different things can you do with manna? Let me tell you what. They were working that. There was quite a big recipe book on, you know, like 600 things you could do with manna. 400 years. All right, so here's what I want us to do. We're thinking about money and possessions, and we're gonna use this whole story of God's provision in the manna which became a daily provision to just kind of work through it as a construct to help us understand what's going on here, how to think biblically about our money and possessions, just using this story kind of as the case, all right? So what we notice, first of all, is this manna comes from God. God is the giver of so many things in this story, right? So he is given deliverance. He's given them the spoils of Egypt. He's given them victory. He's given them his presence as he's going before them. In in the Bible story, if you haven't read it, the manifestation of God's presence is seen in this cloud that covers them during the day and is their shade. It makes a big difference when you're living in the Sinai Peninsula. And he was a pillar of fire. He manifests in this pillar of fire at night. He gives them his presence, and he gives them this sweet provision called manna. Every day, a daily provision. And as he talks about this provision, and Moses explains it, go back to verse 4, and we see that in this provision, God said, I'm gonna give you a test, you see it? I, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instruction, whether they will obey me, whether they will be a people of faith that trusts me, that is shown in this simple fact that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Faith is all about taking God at his word. Taking out his word. We're obeying his commands and we're trusting in his promises. It was a test. Would they trust God for tomorrow's provision by only taking today's? And what they don't use at the end of the day, will they trust God for tomorrow's by throwing it out? Throwing it out. So we note this about God's provision it was sweet, it was good, it was a good provision. It was daily and it was sufficient for each day. There was no other relief work. There was no planes flying in with UN drops. There, there, weren't, there wasn't a train of, of trucks moving in from Egypt that you know had a change of mind. We want to help you poor people out. It was God, and it was sweet, and it was miraculous, even though it was daily and sufficient. It came every day except on the seventh day, right? And they didn't have anything to do with earning it or deserving it. God loved them and He wanted to take care of them in a very practical, tangible way. What do we learn about the people here? Well, the people work, and their work was gathering it. There are stories in the Bible where it talks about a widow. (laughs) And the prophet Elijah, and she's running out of flour, and she's running out of oil, and it just keeps replenishing. The pot keeps replenishing. So God could have said, here's the cool thing. Tell your people to just put the jars out, and and every night, I'm gonna fill them up. They didn't do it that way. So every morning they went out, when the dew kind of dissipated, what formed on the ground were these, these sweet little wafers. Maybe like Krispy Kreme donuts or something. I don't know. And, and, you know, so, so they would, there was dignity and, and working for it. There was community, right, as they're all out gathering. There was this daily reminder for the kids. You know, you're going, what, what, what is this? And the parents telling the kids. And I can imagine if one of those kids was like me, I would have said this a few times. Dad, like there's a lot here. Why do we do this every day? Why don't I like just get a whole bunch for the whole week? Wouldn't that be simpler? And uh, but but God gave clear instructions. Clear instructions. You take what you need for today. And then we're going to see the other thing is God's people share. Now, it's not explicit when you're reading through verse 18. So it says they gathered, and those who had much had just the right amount. And it says those who didn't have enough had just the right amount. Everyone had just the right amount. And it kind of seems like it didn't matter if you, if you had like 52 omers and you only needed like four. It all worked out like it just was magic. God did another miracle, not just bringing it down, but then making it right for what you needed. Uh, actually we know that um, for the excess that you have just get rid of it because you know what's going to happen on the next day it's going to spoil and that which was sweet will be filled with maggots and it'll stink and so God says with the things I give you take enough for today if you have more than for today you give to those who don't And the reason I say that is because that's exactly the point Paul's making with his rich brothers and sisters in Corinth who are getting ready to collect an offering for the people back in Jerusalem who love Christ, but who are in this famine-stricken land, and they're poor, and the rich Macedonian church there in Corinth is going to give out of their abundance to meet their lack and their need. So look at it on the screen, 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says this to his friends in Corinth. Our desire is not that others might be relieved, i.e. the the Christians in Jerusalem, while you, Corinthians, are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. Ah, the Bible starts talking equality in ways that we don't think about. There's some economic connections here to equality, the Bible says. At the present time, Paul says, your plenty, Corinthians, will supply what they need, the church in Jerusalem. Your plenty, their need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, here it is, Exodus 16. The one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Now, this is a consistent teaching in the Scripture, that God's people are to share out of the abundance of what God has provided were to share to others in need. When the people go out to hear John the Baptist and he's saying, hey, you guys got to get ready to meet the King, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and you need to repent and you need to bring forth the fruit, the works of repentance. And they say, well, what does that look like? And so John says in Luke 3, crowd says what should we do then the crowd asks, what are these fruits of repentance John answered anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none anyone who has food should do the same he goes on to say if you're a tax collector don't take more than you're supposed to required to tax them if if you are a soldier don't use your position in force to extort more money out of people Jesus talked about this. Remember the rich young ruler who comes to him and says, how, how, do I etern- how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me, Matthew 19, 21. This is what was said of the early church, Acts chapter 2, verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. In chapter 4, 32, you don't have that on the screen, but just listen to it. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. So think about it. it mentally, they, they didn't see their stuff as we often do, you know, with our name written in, you know, Sharpie permanent ink. No one considered any of their possessions as their own, but they shared everything they had. And then it goes on to say two verses later, because of that, there was no needy person among them. So when God is giving the manna, and he's wanting them to take the abundance that they have, more than they, they need, and give it to those who have less, this was setting them up to not just do it within the people of God, But his design and desire for his people is, as he promised to Abraham, I'm gonna bless you so that all the families of the world will be blessed through you, ultimately pointing to Christ. But his people have always been blessed to bless others. And that's what we see happening. And the church is exploding in Jerusalem as there's this generous compassion and mercy to people in need. John writes in his letter, 1 John 3, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. So last kind of point from the wilderness. When God's people hoard things, things go bad. You could almost write that down as kind of the sermon in a sentence. When God's people, when we hoard things that God has given us, things go bad. So that which was sweet, filled with maggots and a stench, and when the New Testament unpacks this concept, it's not saying that our food rots and our clothes rot, but there's another kind of decay that's going out on. And it's a decay of the inner life of our hearts. When we do life like this, when we do life like this, things go bad. Good things go bad. Good things go bad when they become ultimate things. So how should we treat money and possessions? Let me suggest three or four things. With thanksgiving. Have you ever wondered, why, why do Christians pray before a meal? Why do we do that? There's, there's no command in Scripture. There's an example of Jesus praying when he broke bread with his disciples. But we do that as a response of thanks, recognizing all that we have, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it and all those who live in it. This is from God's good hand and we recognize his goodness as we sit down before a meal, right? So thanksgiving, thanksgiving is huge. In Deuteronomy chapter eight, this is 40 years forward from the story in Exodus 16. So the storyline of the Bible goes, they're going out of Egypt and they're supposed to get in the promised land, but they turn back on God and they want to go back to the idols and they make, remember, Aaron makes the golden calf and God says, you're going to have to wander in the wilderness for 40 years and everybody save Joshua and Caleb, the two of the 10 spies that came back believing that God could give them that land. Everybody else died for their lack of faith. 40 years they're about to go in and God's word comes to his people and he says look here's what's going to happen I'm going to take you into this good land it's going to be amazing there are going to be minerals like iron and copper there's going to be houses that you didn't build and there's going to be all kinds of abundance you're going to have so much wheat and barley and grain you're going to have bread that you can't believe and you're going to have everything you need but be careful Because when you get to that day, it's going to be really easy for you to forget me. And so continue to bring your thanks to God for his good provision. Thankfulness. Thankfulness is really, really important for all that we have. His daily sufficient provision. We need wisdom. Wisdom to steward the resources God's entrusted to us wisdom to know the difference between what do we need and what do we want See, we live in a world that tells us everything you want is what you need to be happy and you deserve it and you're desiring it, so just go for it. And um, by the way, your standard of living is commensurate with your quality of life, or should I put it the other way? Your, Your experience in life, your quality of life will be equal to just your standard of living. And if you can just raise it up and have more, you're gonna be happier, And that's how everything is sold and marketed in our day. They're good things, but they're turning them into ultimate things. And when we chase those things and hold on to those things and grab those things, those good things go bad. They go bad. And thankfulness is a cure. And wisdom is necessary. Jen Hatmaker, one of the books I mentioned on the bottom of your uh, sermon outline of questions for your groups this week says this in her book seven I want to confront the big part of me that says more with the smaller part that says enough we need wisdom we need caution we need caution to be aware that the good provisions that God gives us if we do this with them or if we can consider them to be things that ultimately will give us security Ultimately, will give us a sense of significance. Ultimately, that's gonna be the bottom ground of where I find happiness and joy. Those good things can really become spiritual liabilities. And one of the things the Bible talks about, it warns us, be careful, be careful. This good thing of the possessions that I've given you, if you you look to them for the wrong things, hold on to them in the wrong way, they can be devastating to you spiritually. Paul's making this very point in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Aha! Is that a little clue on what we need? But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich who want to get rich. It doesn't say those who are rich. Those who want to get rich. And the rich who want to get richer fall into a temptation and a trap. Ecclesiastes say, we never have enough. We never have enough. And the trap is into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge. Just see yourself tied down with a whole bunch of cinder blocks and they drop you off the edge of the boat that's what this does it just takes you down into ruin and destruction verse 10 for the love of money not money the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs Jesus said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. So, how how do we treat money? With thanksgiving, with wisdom, with caution, and with a loose grip. With a loose grip. Don't do this, do this, recognizing everything we have is from God. And we hold it with a disposition of, Lord, are there people around me that need the resources you've given to me. In, in the game of golf, if you play golf, um, one of the things they'll say is, don't grip your club too hard. When you do that, just do this with me, just clench your fists like this. You never knew that's what a golf swing looks like. All right, so can you feel your forearms? You guys aren't doing this. All right, just do this, all right, I know. You don't play golf, you have a problem with it. You, okay, can you feel your forearms when you squeeze your hand? It gets tight. And what happens is, now when, the, when, when your muscles get tight like that, you cannot make a good smooth swing. And what happens is, you usually duff the ball, and you hit it like five inches behind the ball, and the ball maybe travels five inches ahead of where it was, off the tee. And, and so, when we do this... We can't, we're not in a position to advance God's blessing, to advance his mission to the world as we give back to God a portion of what he's given to us so that more and more people will know this God who loves them and desires a relationship with them. We're not gonna be positioned to help those that God places in our path that have need. So we don't do this. We do this. So let's bring it home. So this is how we should think, this is how we should treat. Now, what should we do? So the first thing is declare it's all God's. Just recognize everything that you have. Deuteronomy 8 says, even your ability to earn wealth comes from God. So don't get duped into thinking, I earned it the good old American way. Uh, You know, I, I earned it. It's all mine. I can do with it what I want. That is that that's not a biblical worldview. That's the world's worldview. You declare it's all God's. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. And you honor God with your wealth. You honor God with your wealth. I love what Craig Blomberg says in his excellent book on possessions and money. He says this, A necessary sign of a life in the process of being redeemed is that of transformation in the area of stewardship. If you call yourself a Christ follower, but you're doing life like this, and you're not a giver, you're not trusting God, thanking God for all that you have, then you're not, gr- you're not growing. As a, we're talking about being rooted in Christ for the good of the world, going deeper in Christ so we might know more of Christ's mercy and grace and p- be positioned to be conduits of that in the world. We are not growing as a Christ follower if we're not givers. This isn't Door Creek Church. This isn't a pastor talking to you. This is God. He's saying, don't get duped into thinking that God has your life if he doesn't have your money and your possessions. And so the proverb puts it this way. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. And so the Bible will talk about giving a 10th. And the first fruit was a 10th of that first crop that came in. And you gave it to God in thanks for this crop, for taking care of you and in faith that even though I'm given a portion of what I still don't have all of it yet, I'm trusting you that you're gonna take in the rest of what I need for this year. And so it's a proportion that represents my life and my love and my faith in Christ there's a third thing that we need to recover quickly here in America is we live on what we earn and we cultivate our contentment not in our possessions but in Christ. We live on what we make. When our lifestyle exceeds our income, the quality of our life tanks. When our lifestyle exceeds our income, the quality of our life doesn't, the world says it does this. And God's word says, no, actually it does the opposite. And if you've ever been or if you are in debt right now, you understand that. And see, we're, we're, we're told, no, actually, raise your standard of living and you'll be happier. And so what happens is I make this much, but my standard of living's here, and guess how we get from here to here? It's called what? Debt. So we gotta live on gratefully on what is God has given us Paul talks about contentment, Philippians 4. This is, this is really huge. It'd be a great verse for, for us to memorize. I know what's, what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. This is Philippians 4.12. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So Now, just check this out. His contentment is... Is not in his circumstance. He said, There's been times in my life where I've got a lot. There's been times in my life where I haven't had anything. But I've learned the secret of contentment. And where is it found? Through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. When I have a lot, when I don't have anything. Live on what we earn. So we we need to decide what we're going to live on. We need to make a plan. It's called a budget where we tell our money where it should go. Now, we got a wonderful resource, and if you don't know about financial peace, hundreds and hundreds of people have uh, had their marriages restored. (laughs) I mean, this is like the big stressor for people who are married is money. It's the number one cause of divorce. So we take a lot of people through it. They think they're getting a course on finances, and they are, but they come out going, this is the best thing to have to our marriage. Laura and I are just going through it right now. So good for our marriage. We're on the same page. We're, like, we're, we're way more on the same page. So, financial peace, it's in your resources. There's a free budget guide. I'd encourage you to track your spending every penny for the next two to three months, and you're going to go, Whoa, you know I like coffee that much. <laughs> wow. I thought we were going out a little bit more than usual, but whoa, that was like a lot whoa, that's interesting. We didn't give anything to anybody but ourselves. Track your money for two to three months and then get out of debt. Proverbs 22, seven says, the borrower is slave to the lender. One of the things financial peace will tell you is get rid of those credit cards. If you cannot, if you're like under just a weight of debt, just get rid of those right now. Get rid of them. He's got a wonderful approach to just getting after your debt. We have people who have just gotten tons of debt off their backs as they've approached kind of Dave Ramsey's debt snowball, as he calls it. And the Bible talks about saving, right? The wise person in Proverbs 21 20 has stores. That's a biblical concept. That you should be saving. You should be giving, you should be saving should be getting out of debt. There's a fourth thing, sharing with those in need. So get rid of the stuff that you no longer have. So I know this weekend weather's kind of fooling us because we were thinking we should start moving the winter stuff and now we're kind of going back to the winter stuff. I got a sweater on here. What is wrong with... I'm mowing the lawn yesterday and there's snow flying... But I, I told everybody last night, if R.D. asks you if that was snow, tell them absolutely that was not snow. When the wind is really blustery at this time of year, it takes those apple blossoms, congeals them, and it's just apple blossoms that feel like snow. <laughs> so, so here's the deal. Do you do this? you like, okay, so we just did winter. We got winter clothes. So as you're moving, before you just go, okay, I'm gonna move those here. I'm gonna take the summer stuff here. So just before you do that, Go through the winter clothes, and anything you didn't wear this winter, guess what? You're not going to wear it next. Don't, I really like that. I've wore it three, yeah, that's right, three years ago. So <laughs> give it to people. Give it to boomerangs. When, when we give our stuff to boomerangs, we're giving it to people that don't have as much of us, as us. There are all kinds of ministries you don't know about that regularly come, ministries, some of them are faith-based, some of them aren't, but they're doing good work helping people who are in tough spots, and they come to us at Boomerang and say, hey, could you help us out with this homeless family? They need some clothes. Hey, we're trying to get this, this apartment outfitted here. Do you have some household goods that we give? Can we give it away? So get rid of your stuff. I guarantee you this. If you got rid of 50 to 100 items, that's what I said, 50 to 100 items this spring cleaning, by July 1, you wouldn't miss one of those. You wouldn't even think about them. And I'll just be honest, if all my stuff got to the front lawn, I'd go, yikes, go, yikes. Because I'm holding on to stuff that somebody else can use, share it, grow in this grace of giving. If you didn't know, every first weekend of the month, to make it easy, the truck comes right here, boomerangs, and any other day, that it's open. You can go right down there to Northgate Mall. So this teaching is hugely instructive. But one of the things that we need to do as we are confronted with God's word is recognize where we have not centered our life on God's truth. Remember our second value here, the Bible's authority. Centering our lives on God's truth. And so this calls us to get back and we just, we confess these things. Our love of money, trusting in money, trying to find contentment in our stuff, a stinginess in our hearts, a lack of trust in God to meet our needs, an indifference to the needy around us, thinking that my money is mine, my stuff belongs to me and nobody's gonna tell me what to do with it. Jesus picks up, and we'll close with this, this very passage, when he stood up, meaning in Exodus 16, when he stood up in the temple and said this, I'm the bread of life, is John 6, 48. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they what? They died. So it was was sufficient for every day, but it wasn't sufficient for all of life. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that... No, so that one may eat of it and not die. He's speaking of himself. He's the bread of life. He's the bread that comes down from heaven so that when you eat of it, you'll never die. He says it again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, what is he talking about? If anybody places their faith in me and trusts in me, that I'm God's good, sweet provision for today and every day of your life and beyond your life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so may we grow to be generous people who are thankful for all that we have, who are positioned to grow and be generous and help those who have less than we. May it be a mark of this church And like the church in Jerusalem, may people be drawn to the generous spirit that is all about God's heart. Let's pray. Father God, grow us in this. We just confess that it's really easy to place our trust in money, our our contentment and happiness in possessions, and we just want to reject that, and we want to follow your good teaching here, align our lives with that, and know more and more about the freedom of living like you in this world. Help us to do that. Thank you for your mercy with us. Grow us as generous Christ followers. And Lord, for those who don't know you yet, may they be attracted to a God like this. The one who did not spare his own son, will he not also give us all things? We bless you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.